We have two readings this morning. We begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3, some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, we'll also be going to Matthew chapter 19 today. Both those passages will be in play as we look at one of the top issues the church deals with today, the culture deals with today, um, and that is the institution of marriage and how we approach and deal with divorce. Um, we are, we're in the middle of six particular didactic teachings that Christ has brought to us at the end of chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. Um, two weeks ago, we had a chance to look at the murderous nature of the human heart, and we rightly concluded that we are all murderers. Um, last week we had a chance to look at the adulterous nature of the human heart and we rightly concluded that we're all adulterers. Um, and, and Jesus doesn't look at them and go, you know what, they're getting upset with my teachings. He continues to reveal kingdom principles and kingdom truths so that we will hear and that we will turn. And today as he gets to this issue of divorce and adultery and remarriage and how it's supposed to work its way out in our lives... This passage is, is one that many pastors will sidestep. Uh, and they'll do it subtly. They'll, just, they'll, they'll read it, they'll talk about it briefly, and they'll move on to the next one. Oftentimes, they'll couple verses 31 and 32 with the previous passage, and they'll tie it together and, and not deal with it. And I, I get that. I mean, I get it. You talk about divorce today in the contemporary church, and it's going to impact people broadly because it's, it's pervasive in the church. Not only that, the, the teaching on it for centuries, and we can, you know, we can go back all the way to the, the Roman Catholic Church, but the teaching on divorce and marriage and adultery has been so convoluted and so twisted that when you begin to study it, I can see where someone will become overwhelmed if you deviate from the text. But pastors stay away from it because in the heart of every man, in the heart of every woman who's ever been married, there's a desire to leave on the marriage. There's a desire to leave apart from Christ. And so Christ is teaching directly to those individuals who want to operate according to their sin nature. And he's saying, there's a better way, there's a higher way, there's a kingdom way. And I will enable you, by the power of my spirit, to live like this. Like sons and daughters of my king. The study has been convoluted not because the, the Bible is not clear on this. The Bible is crystal clear. We don't like what it says. And when we don't like what the Bible says, we go, okay, we'll take this passage from the Old Testament, this from the New Testament, we'll squeeze them together and we'll pull them apart. And this is what it really means. And we'll distort the Word of God. And we're excellent at doing that. I mean, there are things that we do well, and that's one. Taking the Word of God and twisting it to meet our needs, our desires, and justify our sin. We're not going to do that today. We're going to hear Christ speak to us from Matthew chapter 5, from Matthew chapter 19. We're going to hear a little bit of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to say, okay, what does the Bible teach on this matter? And more importantly, 
how are we to live it out in the power of Christ if this is true? With sober minds, sober minds, as you check your emotions and willing hearts to hear, let's hear Christ speak on this matter. This morning I want to show you the biblical perversion, and it is perverted, what has transpired over the centuries. Two, the biblical truth. What does the Bible actually say on it? Number three, the Testament's reconciled. The Pharisees had a great question. They said, what about Deuteronomy 24? We know what it says. How do you match that with this teaching? We've got to reconcile them. We need to. We'll do that. And then lastly, this call to gospel intimacy, gospel unity. Let's do the first one, biblical perversion. In our Lord's day, the men, the women would have had the culture allowed, but the men... Believe themselves righteous before God, okay before God, according to his laws, if they divorced their wives as long as, for any reason, for any reason, as long as they gave her a legal certificate of divorce, they were good to go. God was okay, the culture was okay, the wife was okay, as long as they give them that piece of paper. A legal document enabling the wife to prove that she was no longer married to her husband. He said in verse 31, it, is also, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Our Lord's day was very contemporary when we look at it from a historical perspective. Our Lord's day, very much like our, our day, without the full participation of women. <laughs> women now have equal rights to divorce their husbands. They didn't back then. But the reasons that they used back then can come right out of... Uh, uh, um, Code, legal code, written in various states. Today in the state of California, irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences, which may include cruel or abusive treatment, desertion, jail time, gross habits of intoxication, neglect of financial support, adultery, impotency, fascinating, or general disinterest. Hmm? California, by the way, I didn't know if you, if you don't know this, this is a little bit of information for you. California is the first state to come up with the legal designation no-fault divorce. How is that possible? I mean, what is a no-fault divorce? She says, it's not my fault. He says, it's not my fault. It's no one's fault. Then don't get divorced, right? First state, other states now have it, but we came up with that one where no one's to blame. The Jews of Jesus' day were doing the same thing that we have done and that is take very clear, biblical, eternal gospel principles and turn them upside down to meet and suit our needs. Taking passages out of context and then twisting them so we can do what we want to do, even though we know God doesn't want us to do it. They thought themselves righteous before God because they took this certificate of divorce straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and they perverted it. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4, the passage that Christ is talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 24, teachings from Moses' law. Here it is. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, we'll look at that, because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce... Sounds like a soap opera. Gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And they took that, many in the time of Moses, but certainly in the time of Christ, they took that and said, oh, 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 the door's wide open. It's not binding until death. We have lots of reasons here that we can come up with. I mean, lots of reasons that I'm displeased with my wife to dispose of her. Now, what's fascinating is Moses did not use the word adultery as a reason for divorce. Why? He doesn't use it here. Why? Because according to the law of Moses, what would happen to the adulterer? They would be put to death. Hence the end of the marriage. <laughs> right? I mean, if someone dies, the marriage ends. Right? So he's not talking about adultery. I've heard lots of uh, people try to twist it. He's talking about adultery. He's not. Adultery resulted in death, which resulted in the end of the marriage. He's talking about something different. So what was he talking about? What is this indecency about the wife that enabled a man to issue a certificate of divorce. 
Now, we read this in light of Matthew chapter 5 and in light of Matthew 19, and we think Moses is trivializing divorce. He's demeaning it. Not at all. In fact, it was just the opposite. In the time that Moses was writing this, divorce, marriages had become so, divorce had become so rampant and the institution of marriage so marginalized that God instituted a provisional measure to limit the powers of the husband and to increase the honor of the wife and the sanctity of marriage. How did he do this? Just a few things here I want you to see from Deuteronomy 24. This provisional, this provisional teaching in light of the horrific conditions of marriage in the time of Moses. First, the grounds had to be based on something that made the wife indecent or unclean. Now we hear that and we go, what is that? The word in the Hebrew, it's irva, and it, it's, it's only used one other time in the Bible, so really hard to nail this one down. Generally, people think that it means something that disgraces her morally, a moral blemish of some kind. Now keep that in mind when we fast forward to our Lord's Day. But this moral blemish had to be verified by the husband and two witnesses in order to issue the certificate of divorce. First. In other words, no longer could a man dismiss his wife for any reason. Second thing that this law put into place is that the man actually had to issue her a formal certificate of divorce. In that he could not just kick her out of the house, which was very common. Because the woman that left the house was in danger of being accused of adultery and put to death. Not only that, she could not remarry unless she had the certificate of divorce. And with that in hand, assuming she couldn't remarry, she still had the option of becoming a prostitute. You say, that's horrific. But she would have been able to survive. Third thing that this teaching enabled in that time, that the man could not remarry her. Couldn't remarry her. If she, had got, if, she, if she were to marry another and get divorced or marry another and that husband would die, he couldn't go back and go, you know what, I was out of my head, I wasn't thinking clearly, let's get back together. The law said no. And every step of the process that Moses established, he limits the power of the man to issue a certificate of divorce for any reason, and he elevates the sanctity of marriage. And indeed, gives much power to the position of a wife to not just be cast out and discarded. In fact, every part of the teaching elevates marriage rather than diminishes it in light of the culture. Now, during our Lord's Day, they took that and they went, oh, this is fantastic. The main point of the passage, which was to elevate and guard the sanctity of marriage, they turned upside down by focusing on one word, indecency, erva. And they defined it in their time as anything that displeased the husband. Anything. Not a grand moral defect, whatever that moral defect was, but anything that the husband found displeasing with his wife. And whatever it was, he could issue her, in the minds of those in the time of Christ, issue her a certificate of divorce, and he was okay by God and okay by the culture. The only other time this word is used... It's used in the context of, it means defecation. So whatever this moral blemish is that Moses is referring to, it's significant and it's severe. It's not adultery, but it's right there. It's close to it. And so they interpret it so broadly that the man in the time of Christ believed that according to Scripture, he could put his wife out for not keeping the house clean. He could put his wife out for not rearing the children as he wants them reared. According to the school of Hillel, Rabbi Akiba, this included such grievances as accidentally burning his food to seeing another woman he found more beautiful than his wife that he wanted to marry. And therefore, he would write her a certificate and she'd be on her way. What was the result? In the time of Christ, it was social disintegration, right? I mean, the institution of marriage, the foundation that God says, this is how we're going to build families. This is how we're going to rear children. Decimated. Husbands exchanging their wives like they would shoes. The wives suffered extreme affliction, being put out in a culture that they could not sustain their own lives, being put in jeopardy of being put to death for adultery. And, of course, the children. 
I mean, you had a system, a structure that was doomed. And so God brings these teachings into the, the law of Moses, into the Mosaic law. So what is the biblical truth according to marriage? I mean, that's the perversion. And it was so perverted that those who embraced it saw lives destroyed. The biblical truth Jesus presents because he would not be swayed by public opinion. He would not be swayed by the religious experts. And he would not be swayed, more importantly, by the sinfulness of the human heart, which desires the the, the former, right? I mean, we hear that, we go, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. As long as the wife has equal rights to dismiss her husband, we're okay with it, right? I mean, we're okay with it. Ladies said, yeah, as long as I can do the same, when he doesn't pick up his clothes, right, and he comes home late work, work from, uh, late from work every single day, and he ever pays attention to me, then I can send him packing. Christ would have none of it. And he does something fascinating here. I want you to see this. Robbie Zacharias, one of my favorite apologists, taught our communication on three different levels. Level three, which is table talk conversation. Level two, which is the law, which we talk about the law. And level one, which is foundational teachings, epistemological teachings. Jesus Christ blows right by Deuteronomy 24 because they want to talk about, wait a minute, we're going to see that in Matthew 19. He goes right back to the very beginning. He goes back to Genesis and he moves beyond the law to the origin and foundation of marriage itself by God. Where God took Adam and took Eve and he brought them together and he did what? He made them one. Intending them to stay as one until death do they part. In fact, before the fall, before sin entered the equation, divorce, not only was it not an option, it wasn't conceivable. Why? Divorce is the result of sin. No sin, no divorce. No desire for divorce. No thought of divorce. Instead, what do you have? People, a husband and a wife, married in unity and harmony. How fantastic. The way it was supposed to be from the very beginning. People that came together and stayed together in a covenant relationship. Divorce is the result of sin. And that's why God says dogmatically in Malachi chapter 2, I hate divorce. And that's why Christ comes along and he prohibits it. He prohibits it in his kingdom. Look again. He said in Matthew chapter 5, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, there's the formula. It has been said, but I say to you, here's the kingdom teaching. Here's the principle. Here's the foundational Christian axiom. He's saying, listen. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the thrust of the passage is so straightforward that we hate it. Because we know exactly what he's saying. If you get married, you stay married. If you become one, you stay one. And we don't like that. Because everybody who's been married more than a month or two months or six months knows this is hard. We know it's hard. And if you've been married and it's not hard at all, well, I don't know if you're married. I mean, I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. I've never met anybody like that. He said, oh, no, everything's easy. Everything's rosy. Everything's harmonious all the time. All the time. Jesus is saying, when you get married, and then you get a divorce, the remarriage makes adultery the issue. That the marriage is broken when adultery takes place. And we're, we'll look at that in a little bit. But if there's this one exception to the rule is not commanded. Our culture and our church desperately needs to hear this fundamental teaching on the sanctity and the unbreakability, probably not a word, of marriage. So you hear all these statistics. And so I, I did. I spent about an hour trying to hammer it down. You hear... People say, oh, it's higher than, divorce in the church is higher than the popular culture. It's less. It's the same as. And what I could find, for whatever it's worth, it's about one in three within the church, depending upon how you define the church. Because that, you know, what your definition of a, a biblical body. But it's about one in three. So on average, every marriage in the church, every three marriages, one's going to end in divorce. One is going to embrace a perversion of God's teaching 
on this sacred union. The problem is that, as we looked at last week, love and marriage have been so distorted by the culture, made its way into the church, that people are getting married for all the wrong reasons. I mean, they get, we, as we looked at lust last week, people are marrying out of lust and not love. They're marrying out of sexual attraction rather than, than steadfast, long-suffering commitment. And so what happens? They get married. Things are good. There's the honeymoon, sometimes a real short honeymoon. And then they realize, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And the lust wears off, and the sexual attraction wears off, and the physical attraction wears off. And then what do they say? Well, then I'm, I'll just find someone else. And we divorce. And then the cycle continues, and we look for that next woman or that next man who will satisfy me. And we enter on the same premise. And the result is the same. And so if we enter marriage and we, we present ourselves to a member of the opposite sex in this manner, we shouldn't be surprised if one in three marriages in the church end in divorce. If it's not based upon covenant relationship or godly love or sacrifice, then it will end like this. This is not the way of the kingdom. Love, not lust. Covenant marriage is not conditional sexual unions. It's for God's people. Biblical marriage and love are for the steadfast because marriage is a lifelong commitment. Now, I go back 100 years. I could make that statement. People say, of course. Why are you preaching on this? We know this. But today we don't know this. We don't know this. Almost all of you know people who have gone through a divorce. Many of you know they've gone through it for the wrong reasons. Instead of fleeing when the relationship is difficult... And it will get difficult. The Bible says you work through it. You work through it. You buckle down. You spend time in scripture with the counsel of many, with your brothers and sisters. And you push through this. Why? Why? Because God brought you together. Because God made you one. Because God said don't let anybody tear apart that which I make one. Not only that, what do we do? Most people today, when we get married, what do we do? We stand before God and we stand before man and we take vows. What do those vows sound like? What do those vows sound like? And I still hear them today. To love one another, what? For better or richer or sickness and in until we make the vow. Kurt's going to be preaching on this next week, right, Kurt? When you make a vow, let your yes be yes or your no be no. If you stand before God and man and you say, here is my commitment to this man or to this woman, keep the commitment. Why? Because God's making you one. When we get married and there's a deep desire for intimacy. There's a deep desire for that intimacy that God uniquely places between a man and a woman. But in order for these deep, emotional, sentimental aspects of love to be based upon love and not lust, there must be steadfastness. There must be that that movement of two people saying, we are going to stay the course to cultivate the very thing that we desire most. And that's that real intimacy that you want. I've never met two people. I'm sure they're out there who said, you know, we're going to get married, but we don't want to be intimate. We're going to get married, but we don't want to grow together. They want to. The problem is, we live in a culture, and many in the church, when things get difficult, instead of staying the course and cultivating that intimacy that makes it through the hard times, we leave the marriage. And we find someone else who we think will make us happy and will have real intimacy with. That's why it's not uncommon to have people divorced and remarried two, three, four, five times. We live in a time when divorce is actually encouraged. This is going to become my new phrase, the new normal. Because it is the new normal now. I mean, the new normal is what? When, we, when I fill out a, uh, um, a parent information sheet now for the boys to play a sport, father number one, father number two, mother, uh, mother number one, mother number two, address, multiple addresses, multiple phone numbers. Why? The new, what's the new normal? Multiple fathers, multiple mothers, stepbrothers, half-sisters. That's not the biblical way. That's not the kingdom way. That's not what God designed. We so long for that intimacy that comes from longevity in proximity to one another. 
And divorce destroys that. The flip side is equally bad. In that the powerful emotions and pain, suffering, that comes as a result of divorce, last a lifetime. God never, because God never intended a man and woman to get married and then be torn apart, you cannot do that. You cannot marry and divorce without it impacting your entire life for the rest of your life. It's not like you just do a quick surgery and now we're over it and now we move on. But because it's so commonplace in the culture and making itself commonplace in the church, we have forgotten that there are certain creative cycles that God puts in place that cannot be changed. That God works in particular ways in his creation that when we stop, when we turn something, it just can't be undone. It can't just be made right. You say, when Christ comes in, he'll make all things new. Yes, but for the duration of this time, it will be bad. I'll give you a few examples. A child that does not receive proper nutrition, either in the womb or when they're young, will suffer a lifelong suffering, physical disability issues, cognitive developmental issues. We know this. The failure of an infant or a child to bond properly to a mother or father has lifelong results. You can't just say, oh, we'll fix that. It's part of God's design. We know, we know that certain developmental structures of the brain, synaptic neurons, connections, certain ones to develop in particular ways have to grow at certain times in life. And if you pass that by, you can't do it again. We know this. These are, these are cycles of God's creation that if you disrupt, you disrupt it permanently. Divorce is one of those. Divorce is one. Divorce is one of those things that God never, ever intended. And when we do it, when we tear asunder, and I love that from the King James, when we tear apart that which God brings together, it has lasting, lifelong impact. Divorce is the product of sin. And it brings irreparable damage to people, to God's creation. That's the biblical truth. We see the perversion, we see the biblical truth, but how do we then reconcile Deuteronomy 24? Because if you're listening, you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see a contradiction in the Bible. I'm going to write a book, which you probably will, right? You'll sell it and lots of people will read it. You'd be more confused. How do we reconcile Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew chapter 5? Because if marriage is not a conditional sexual union to be broken at any time, but a wonderful gift... For a unique gift between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman to become one, that we just pervert. How are we to understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, and in light of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 about becoming legalistic ourselves? I mean, how do we not fall into this legalistic trap? Our Lord is so gracious. In Matthew chapter 19, he develops this teaching from Matthew chapter 5. You can't do Matthew 5 without turning to Matthew 19. It's an automatic place you go. Because in Matthew chapter 19, he expounds upon the harmony and intended unity of marriage. And he deals with the laws of Moses and the kingdom principles he sets forth in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read to you again, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Listen with all your ears. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any, any and every reason? They're drawing from Deuteronomy 24. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they're no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. The Pharisees were listening closely and they said, Well then... Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. And then he says, I tell you, this is the verily, verily I say unto you. I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. 
And so the, the, the Pharisees ask, wait a second, what are the just reasons for divorce? For all these years, we've been taught that as long as we give her a certificate, we're okay. And now you're telling us we're not okay. And Jesus says, you're right, you're not. He said, then what are they? Jesus reveals that a biblical marriage, it's not a civil union. Whether you stand before a pastor or a judge, it's not a civil union. A biblical marriage is not a sacrament that's consummated by a priest or a pastor who throws some water at you and rubs you with oil. It's not what it is biblically. A biblical marriage is not a simple sexual union that's dissolved when the sexual attraction goes away. Christ draws us back to the law of creation and marriage found in Genesis 2. Where God created the woman. Beautifully, fearfully, and wonderfully made. As a helpmate for the man. You know, in in all of God's creation, he looked at it and he said, it's all good. And then he went, it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helpmate. And so he creates the woman... And then he says this, and it's extraordinary. Listen, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and a mother will be a father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. One. And then he says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That is the simple, biblical truth on marriage indissoluble, unbreakable, permanent. That no man should dare separate. Or woman. It doesn't mean that God can't. If God, if, if the husband or the wife dies by God's providential nature, then the marriage ends. That's why we say, until death do we part. There's no marriage in heaven. So God has that right and authority. But we don't. We don't. God instituted this unique relationship of incredible intimacy. More so than a father to a son and a mother to her daughter. A man and a woman becoming one flesh. This is God's view of marriage. This is the biblical teaching. The sacred scriptural teaching. Two people brought together by God. Made one by God to build one life together under God. In fact... It's such an extreme intimacy that there's no other relationship compared to it or like it other than Christ to the church. That's how unique it is. I'm not going to say very unique because that's not good grammar. It's unique, truly. One man, one woman, one flesh. So the Pharisees said, why then? Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're saying, you're teaching something different. (laughs) And Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it has not been this way from the beginning. So what do we have with Deuteronomy 24? It's a concession. It's a stopgap measure. He said, Moses gave you this because it was so bad. The destruction you were bringing upon your wives and your children and your culture and families was so bad that he put this measure in place because your hearts were hard. But this is not how it's supposed to be. He said, the way it was from the beginning, the way it's supposed to be now in my kingdom is true unity, one flesh, permanent, indissoluble. What I find so condemning is how quickly we as a people gravitate to a passage like Deuteronomy 24. Many of us never having read it, we've read Matthew 5, we've read Matthew 19, but when the marriage gets difficult and we want out, we go to Deuteronomy 24. Why is that? Why is that? We know why that is because there we think we can find it out. There. There it is. That's the gym I've been looking for because I can't stand this guy anymore and I'm out. It's so condemning how quickly we will take passages, and there are several others, like Deuteronomy chapter 24, and instead of wanting to know God's truth, instead of wanting to know the spirit of the law, instead of getting to the foundational purpose of the law, the true meaning behind marriage and divorce, we'll take that, we'll twist it, and we'll hold on to it with all of our might. 
for those of you who were here last year, that happened in our presence. In our presence. Teachings were distributed to a couple that was on the brink of divorce. She happened to embrace these teachings. They were fallacious, they were heretical, and they taught essentially any reason. And it pulled divorce into the muck and into the mire. It pulled marriage down. And what happened? I mean, what ended up happening is that heresy made its way into this very fundamental gospel, kingdom-centered teaching, and it ended the marriage. It ended the marriage. And the fallout was catastrophic in many ways. We do this because we don't like what the Bible says. Now, you, listen, you can find pastors who will preach something different than this. There are books. I will tell you what the titles are because I read six or seven last year, way more than I wanted to read on it. And some are brilliant in their deception. And they will go and they will draw from passages in the Hebrew and they will turn them just enough. And it's just a slight turn where the whole thing gets sideways. And you're like, yeah, that does make sense. And suddenly, you're asking for a divorce. And you're thinking that it's right. And you're thinking it's okay with God. And you're actually using passages to justify it. Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19. He said, no, 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 no. He said, in my kingdom, the citizens of my kingdom, my brothers and sisters, my father's sons and daughters, when you get married, you stay married. He gives us one exception. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to, I want to, Deal with this because it's here, but we got to see it in light of the gospel. The one exception, Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 19, he says it twice. Except on the grounds of sexual immorality, except for marital unfaithfulness. In the Greek, it's the same word, it's pornea. And you say pornography. No, not pornography. Pornea, in its most literal sense, it means to be a harlot. It meant to sleep with someone else. A husband sleeping with another woman, uh, a wife sleeping with another man. It was physical adultery. It's exactly what Christ was talking about. Moses permitted divorce in Deuteronomy 24 in a very small window as a result of the hardness of their hearts. Jesus comes along, trumps that teaching in Genesis chapter 2, and he says the only exception to this is if the husband or wife breaks the marital bond of oneness by becoming one with someone else. Instead of two becoming one, now a third person has entered that dynamic. And Christ is saying, you've already wrecked it. You've already broken it. Whether you file divorce or not, you've already broken the marital relationship when you slept, when you were a harlot with someone else. He reveals this, his teaching in verse 32 of Matthew 5. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And that the, the one thing that fundamentally and catastrophically breaks the marital unity is the husband or wife going out and becoming one flesh with someone else tearing it asunder. We see the perversion. We see the truth. We see the reconciliation between the Old and New Testament. I hope you got that. And you hear all this. And you say, how do I not become a statistic? If you're not married, you must be thinking, huh? It'll be like the disciples say, better not to marry. Better not to marry, Lord. Because this is, this is, I have to know this person so well. Is that me? Brandon, take care of that, will I have to know this person so well that I know that for the rest of my life it's going to work out? Where do we get the resources to enter into marriage and to stay married? Where do we get the resources? If you fundamentally agree with Jesus' teaching on this and that you say marriage is for life, then where do you get the resources to do it? To enter into it and then to stay in it. Jesus Christ refused to do level two here. 
Robbie Zacharias has been so proud. He said, yeah, that's right. Jesus said, I'm not going to deal with Deuteronomy 24. I'm not going to do Mosaic Law. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to talk about fundamental kingdom truths. Epistemological axioms, foundations in our faith of life and death and heaven and hell and reality. We're going to deal with it at this level. In order for us to have the resources to marry properly and stay married, we got to buy, we got to pass too. We can't stay at level two. We can't do the law. If I tell you, here's the new law, it doesn't, doesn't help you. Oh, now I will stay married. That doesn't help you at all. And if we interpret Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 as a stricter version of Deuteronomy 24, we've utterly failed in hearing what Jesus is saying. Now we have a, a harder law. We must do what Christ did and we must push back to a level one, a foundation, a premise that we can sink our, our hands into and hold on to as we make our way into the institution of marriage or counsel others, counseling others. Side note, be very careful the counsel you give because there was much counsel of people in this church who gave bad counsel, thinking they were arguing scripture and they were not. Some of them listened. We must see the ultimate intimacy and unity that Jesus calls us to through the gospel of grace. We must see that. We must see it and we must know that through him there's real power, not hypothetical, but real power to be these people who love in this way and stay the course in this way. There's a passage I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 5 where the apostle Paul equates the relationship between a husband and wife to that of Christ in the church. And I want you to just listen. I'm not going to preach this passage. I can't. It's, it's like three or four sermons in and of itself. But there's a salient point I want you to draw from. Just listen. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul reiterates it again. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And the parallel is extraordinary. I mean, you want to talk about the sanctity of marriage? And the unity between a man and a woman brought together in holy matrimony. Paul compares the marriage to that of Christ and the church. That's how sacred it is. That's the unity he's calling it to. Every marriage. There's so much from this passage. But there's one point I want you to hear from Ephesians 5. Is the degree to which Christ loved the church. Because from that parallel, we then know how to love one another in a marriage. So the question becomes, how does Jesus love the church? How much does Jesus love the church? To what degree does Jesus love the church? Paul said in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. John 15, 13, you know this greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. How much did Jesus Christ love the church? How much does Jesus Christ love the church? That's you, by the way. So much so that he laid down his life. He sacrificed his life. All of who he is, his relationship with the Father, his eternity, he gave up for you. That was his radical love for you. That was his intentional, willful covenant commitment to you. That he would perish, that he would be destroyed so that you would live. Jesus Christ went to the cross and took the punishment for your sins and experienced the full wrath of God. Jesus Christ was divorced from the Father. Jesus Christ, his relationship with the Father was torn asunder. Why? 
so that we who rightly deserve to be divorced from the Father would not be divorced from the Father. We deserved it, right? We've committed adultery. We've sinned against a holy God. And Christ came on and said, no, well, I'm going to change that. God, you exact all of your punishment upon me. Treat me as you should treat them. And then treat them as you should treat me. And Christ was issued a certificate of divorce by the Father. We know that because on the cross he said, Father, why has thou forsaken me? Torn apart. He did this. In verse 26, we are told, Jesus Christ did this. He experienced the ultimate divorce so you can come back into a right relationship with your creator. Why? In verse 26, it says, to make you holy, to make you clean, to present you to himself as a radiant church without stain or without wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, implying what? What's the implication? But we're not. The implication is Christ did this incredible work to make us these things that we're not. We are, as Moses said, we are erva. We are indecent, morally blemished. We are not radiant. We are stained. We are wrinkled. We are blemished. We are not holy. We are not blameless. And we are certainly not ready to be presented before the Father. And so Christ did this great work. Now, if Jesus Christ... Related to us, as we teach husbands and wives to relate to one another in light of this culture. If he did, if he says, I will use your standard church, and I will use your standard culture. When our wives are not so radiant, and our husbands not so decent. Every single one of us would have a certificate of divorce in our hand from the Father. Without exception. Every single one of us be walking around saying, God the Father has divorced me because I am morally blemished. And we would know it's true if Jesus Christ treated us like that. If Jesus Christ related to us as we tell others to relate to one another in, in marriage today, we would all be divorced, we'd all be destined for hell, destruction instead of life, eternal divorce instead of eternal life. That would be the end. But by God's grace, Jesus does not come to us and relate to us like that. He relates to us according to kingdom principles. According to Genesis chapter 2. Not Deuteronomy 24, thankfully. Deuteronomy 24, we all stand condemned. Genesis chapter 2, there's hope. If Christ will treat us like that. If he will love us like that. If he will remain faithful like that. Because we're not faithful. The Bible says that Jesus does not come to us and relate to us like this. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ when? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. He reiterates this in Colossians 2. He says, you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature when God made you alive with Christ, forgiving you all of your sins. In other words, we deserved justly divorce. And yet, in light of what we rightly deserve, Christ comes to us anyway, and he says, marry me. <laughs> but I'm an adulterer. Marry me. But I'm blemished. Marry me, and I will make you clean. Even though we deserve to be divorced, deserve to be separated from God, even though we stand blemished, he comes and he marries us and he sticks with us he sticks with us there's no there's no more faithful person than Jesus Christ he enters into a binding covenant relationship with us and this is what he says you may try to leave me but I will never leave you you may try to forsake me but I will never forsake you because I am your husband. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I love you, and I will never divorce you. In fact, he says, I won't even let you divorce me. I won't let that happen. He enters into this binding covenant relationship, and he says, I will make you radiant. I will make you unblemished. I will deliver you into the hands of my Father, and I will remain faithful. 
today. People get divorced because they say they are no longer compatible. They're no longer compatible. Let me ask you this. How much more incompatible can two people be than Jesus Christ, a holy God, and a sinner? There's no greater incompatibility, and yet Christ stays the course. Some people today, they get divorced because they're no longer attracted to the spouse. We use that phrase, I have fallen out of love. I ask you again, how much more unattractive can a person be than a sinner standing before a holy God? And yet, Jesus stays with us. Some divorce because they are, quote, no longer happy. And they have convinced themselves in their minds that God's ultimate purpose for their life is to, for them to be happy. And they're no longer happy. And let me tell you right now that in marriage you will not always be happy. And they say, I want out. I want to find someone who will make me happy. The Bible says... That by entering into a covenant relationship with us, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. He became a man of sorrows and he was familiar with suffering. He experienced the ultimate unhappiness to be in a marriage and remain married to us. In fact, I don't think anybody suffered to any degree because of a marriage like Jesus Christ. I'm thankful he did not say, this marriage is no longer making me happy. He stayed the course. He stayed with us. I got two more before I close. Please listen closely so you don't leave here and not hear what I say. Because these are hard. These are really hard. Are you ready? Some people get divorced because they're being treated inappropriately. Some cases verbally abused. Some cases physically abused. In those cases... It may be wise and prudent to separate the husband and wife for a period of time. Because in those cases, there may be great harm for both. But the Bible still does not advocate divorce. Wait a minute. Even in the realm of physical abuse? Yes, that's what I'm saying to you because that's what the Bible says. And I don't see it any differently unless you show me. But let's take it back to the cross. Let's take it back to the relationship of Christ and the church. Because here's the standard. Has there ever been any greater abuse, physical or verbal, than that which we unleashed upon our groom? Has there been? Can any man or any woman say, I was verbally and physically abused as Christ was? The Bible says that we spit on our husband. The Bible says that we mocked and we ridiculed our groom. The Bible says that we physically beat him so severely that he was unrecognizable as a man. And then the Bible says that we exercised the ultimate physical abuse by nailing him to a Roman cross. Radical verbal and physical abuse. And yet from the cross, what does Jesus say? God, give me a certificate of divorce for these people. No, what does he say? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. I'm staying the course. I'm not going to divorce them. I'm not going to divorce them. He petitions God for the well-being of the spouse that is behaving so ungodly. Last one. Ready? The case of adultery. I know I'm going to step out on a limb here. But this is how I see the Bible. Where Jesus allows for divorce as a result of the one flesh being broken. He allows for it. But it is neither required nor commanded. Even in the case of adultery. Where he allows for divorce. When we bring this to the cross. We must ask ourselves. How could we? We are the ultimate adulterers. We were adulterers before God, to God, before Christ saved us. We are adulterers when Christ saves us. We are adulterers in Christ. Every time we sin, we turn to an idol and we commit adultery. And yet Jesus Christ stays the course. 
So even in his one exception, adultery, he's saying, I'm not going to do that. The model, the model we have in Christ at the cross is complete and total fidelity, faithfulness, period. Period. Now, please, I'm not, I'm not for a moment going to take away what Christ said. So that if in a marriage, a husband or wife cheated, physically cheated on their wife and committed adultery, and that other spouse, I'm not going to go against what Christ is saying. But if we move it to the cross, there should be much prayer and much contemplation on how Christ treats us and how he relates to us. Because in our adultery, he does not divorce us. Before my wife and I got married, I said, you are never, ever getting rid of me. No matter what. Not even adultery. You're never going to get rid of me. <laughs> She's like, oh, never, never. Why? God makes us one. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. The spouse cheated upon may choose by God's grace to forgive the offense and remain married. And I know couples that have made this cross-centered choice and they've worked through it. And the testimony to God is glorious. It's glorious. Faithfulness, forgiveness, covenant, sacrificial love, long-suffering, mercy. These are characteristics of the kingdom heart. These are characteristics of the kingdom life. And these are the characteristics of a kingdom marriage. One man, one woman, brought together by God, made into one flesh, to live one life. Not legalism, not my needs over your needs, not shape up or ship out, not I'll stay the course as long as it's working for me and going exactly as I want. Jesus did not issue us certificates of divorce, even though we rightly deserve it then and deserve it now. He keeps the covenant he promised to Abraham centuries ago. Because the laws of love and forgiveness are the foundation of our life and faith. And they trump all the other fallacious teachings that we draw out. These are the lives that we, his citizens, are called to. This is the testimony that we are supposed to be to the world. And it's the cross of Christ and the radical love that he shows us in the midst of our idolatry, in the midst of our adultery, that gives us the strength and power to live like it. I know that some of you that this is spoken to in such a way where you're probably overwhelmed with a sense of conviction. This teaching is not made, intended to make you feel guilty. It's intended to reveal the kingdom principles and the power you have in Christ to live a holy life. And if I have in any way with my passion offended you, forgive me. You need to stumble on Christ, not the one who's preaching and teaching Christ. This is not my teaching. This is his teaching. If you're confused on it, go to the word of God. Spend time in prayer. Study it deeply. Because if you do, I believe that you will come to the same conclusions that I have presented to you these past 45 minutes. This is what the scriptures teach. These are the kingdom principles of our Lord. And if we call ourselves sons and daughters of the king, then this is how we are to live. Covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not being the light to this world. Forgive us for having a church that has so much divorce in it and being okay with it and even drawing from your word saying, it's all right. How can we be a testimony, Lord? 
How can the world see fidelity and covenant and mercy and sacrifice and long-suffering if when things get hard, we just leave? How? How can we testify to the love of Christ? How can we testify to the work of Christ in our lives, that he stays with us even when we beat him, even when we kill him, even when we commit adultery? How? It is impossible unless we become the people that you have called and ordained and empowered us to be. I pray that for my brothers and sisters, Lord. There be great reflection upon this matter. For those who are not married, I pray, Father, that they would pause long and they would search the word and they would see this incredible calling to holy matrimony. For those who are married and struggling, I pray that they would draw upon the resources of your son to work through, to long suffer, and to grow. And for those who are divorced, Lord, I pray that they would come to you and seek forgiveness for whatever sin they have caused. For you are a God who is faithful and you forgive. Father, give us clarity on something that's been so convoluted. And as a church, for Camden Avenue Baptist Church, that we would be a people that live in accordance with your kingdom. That the world might see that we are your children. And in so doing, bring you honor and glory. I pray these things in Christ's holy name.